The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the following program belong solely to the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect those of this radio station, our parent company, advertisers, or affiliates. Welcome to Sharing Our Stories. We share stories of support for individuals in recovery from substance misuse and mental health-related issues. There are numerous pathways to recovery, and each week we welcome powerful leaders and role models who have struggled in drug and or alcohol addiction, have found a pathway to recovery, and who thrive as positive community members with an ongoing vision of success. Join us as we share our experiences, strength, and hope. When the world says, give up, hope whispers. Try it one more time. Good morning, Mile High, and welcome back to sharing our stories here on Jammin' 115 and Flow 1071. If you're just tuning in, this program is all about addiction and recovery. My name is Slim, uh, my co-host, Tomas Hernandez with Tribe Recovery Homes. And each week we bring in a different guest to come in and talk about their journey from addiction to recovery. We believe that with this program, sharing our stories, that we can help other people in the Mile High find their pathway to recovery. There are lots of different pathways to recovery. Um, there's no one right way to do it. And um, we believe that if we can share as many different stories as possible, hopefully we can help folks here find that pathway or at least start to believe that they can do it. And if it's not them in particular, maybe it's you uh, have a friend, a family member, a loved one who you know is struggling in addiction. And you can just be that shoulder that they can lean on and, and also learn to understand them a little bit more and maybe help them to begin their pathway to recovery. So thanks for joining us. Uh, Tomas with Tribe Recovery Homes is here. He is the sponsor of this program. And I want to tell you, Tomas, I am so like a round of applause because you've moved into Las Vegas also. Yeah. The recovery Homes. Tell everybody a little bit about that, man. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because also, I mean, this is going to be a cool story tonight. Um, it mixes in with like a two-pronged Vegas story in like a increments of five. Um, good morning, by, by the way, everybody. I hope everybody's well, and I kind of have a thing. If uh, your hangover hurts, I, I'm very glad to hear that. Um, <laughs> so stop drinking. Anyway, um, with that being said, um, yes, uh, Tribe Sin City, Inc. is born in North Las Vegas. Um, it's going to be a great, great extension of what we do here in Denver. I'm very excited about it. Um, getting most of the news. I just uh, got my 10-year coin for being 10 years clean Congratulations. Um, on Sunday, you know, so uh, it is possible, double digits. Um, great to be there. Uh, looking forward to uh, this journey. Um, tribe's getting bigger, and, you know, the need is not getting smaller. So we figured we need to make this tribe family a whole lot larger. We're going to mix Denver with Las Vegas, and you're going to see some diversity here on this show. We're going to be able to make that in a, into a national brand, you know, expand, make and have fun with this because I think Max Media is is the is the the truth. It's the best with Jammin and Flow and and the family that's here in the Max Media family. I'm just really really excited to have that involved. So I I couldn't be slim. I couldn't be even more. I'm it's I'm never speechless, but some parts I don't know what to say because I am. If that makes sense. Well, I'm just proud of you because. I know that there was a time in your life when you were ready to, to not even do this anymore and yeah. you're, you're so revitalized and now you're growing and you've helped hundreds and hundreds of people 
and to see that you're going to expand that and continue to do that, man, I'm just really proud of you. And I'm, I'm proud sure. to know you and, and call you a brother, a friend and uh, a co-host and yeah. just to have us doing this. Um, this morning we have Nani Al-Jalil. <laughs> did I say that right? Did I, did I, you did. did I nail it? You nailed it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She's yes. from Colorado Springs and Nani is our guest for sharing our stories. And, uh, Nani, we gave you a little rundown of, of what this program is beforehand, but I just want to tell you, thank you so much for being here and coming in to share. And um, we're going to turn this over to you and this time becomes yours and it's sharing your story. So Nani, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. And Malhai, our guest this morning to share her story of recovery, uh, addiction and recovery is Nani Al-Jalil from Colorado Springs. And we turn it over to you. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I just want to start off by saying um, what an honor and uh, privilege it is to be here this morning with all of you um, and Tomas. Thank you, Slim. Thank you so much. Um, to be uh, an addict in recovery is something that I never even dreamed was ever possible. Um, for so many years of my life, I was in my active addiction for 24 years solid. Um, and Recovery was something for me that I never believed was um, ever even uh, something I could ever even do. Um, I'm going to kind of start my story off uh, pretty much where it ended. Um, in May of 2018, uh, I woke up handcuffed and shackled to a hospital bed. Um, I didn't know how I got there. And when I woke up, there was a sheriff sitting next to me. I knew um, that it was over. There was something in me that had changed when I opened my eyes and I looked at that sheriff. Um, there was a long space of time in between what I remember and when I woke up. When I opened my eyes, um, everything was different. Absolutely everything was different and something had shifted. Uh, from that 24 years leading up to that moment. And there had been times in my life where, you know, bits of times like chunks of time would come and go and it didn't really matter to me. But, but in that period of time, something definitely changed for me. And I knew some way, somehow that I was going to get out of this life that I had been living. And it wasn't on that day, but it was about, um, two months later, July 5th of 2018, that I ended up turning myself into custody and that became my clean date, July 5th of 2018. Uh, but it was not before uh, cutting off my ankle monitor and um, going to Las Vegas. And so that's kind of a link in for part of what my story became is that, um, you know, I get to be a part of an amazing recovery story where now, um, almost five years later, I'm a part of this amazing team where I am transitioning back into a life of reintegration and recovery. And I'm, I'm in business development and outreach coordination, and I'm going back to where it all began, you know, almost five years later to the date. And I get to spread the message of recovery, strength, hope, experience, and be a part of something that's just so much bigger than myself. And um, I am eternally grateful and proud and honored and humbled by the experiences that I have today. Um, so like I said, it's chopped and screwed. Like most addicts, I am not linear, and I'm going to reverse it all the way back to May 28th of 1981, which was when I was born to 
um, two of the most beautiful people I know. My father, who is from uh, the state of Kuwait. My name is Hanan Mohammed Ahmed Abdulatif Al Abdujalil. Um, and my mother, Diane, who is, uh, she's from, she is originally from Long Island, but she is Scottish and Irish. And so that combination for me um, is a really interesting combination, right? You know, being Kuwaiti and being Scottish and Irish, it, um, it really shaped my identity in a lot of very, very interesting ways because what that meant is that I had this cultural identity that didn't really jam up, right? So like, I had these two very conflicting cultures um, between my mom and my dad, and and they were, you know, they loved each other. They met in college, and um, and and they loved each other. But you, when you have two conflicting cultures like that, you know, for 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 a little Hanani, uh, it was it, it became a struggle, and I can touch on that a lot um, more a little bit later. But so I was born in Colorado Springs, Colorado, in 1981, which makes me uh, the Oregon Trail generation. Whoop whoop, uh, we did. <laughs> We were we were a different breed, so um, being from from that generation, right? I was I grew up in the in the eighties, and um, I had an older brother um, who me and my older brother were really close. A lot of my I was so from Colorado Springs, um, born there, and then my parents moved us to Southern California, and that's where I stayed until I was about seven years old. Um, my memories of my childhood were were really awesome, right? You know, my dad and my mom. I I really have a lot of very cool memories of my dad being around, and it was mostly my dad. My dad, um, my dad used to make like blueberry pancakes, and me and my brother played together all the time. And um, my mom, my mom was in school, and and my dad was too. My dad came here to. Uh, finished his PhD and he's a professor of finance and economics and he did that and my mom went to was pursuing higher education as well and went into like the medical field and was was doing I think it was like orthopedics or some weirdness I don't know um, and uh, we were I, I do I have a lot of very good childhood memories and then um, a decision was made at one point we were always supposed to go back to Kuwait that was the plan and I even remember um, being a small child and we, you know, I learned Arabic and, and then uh, we did, we, my dad taught us how to, we learned all the customs. And I mean, I was very, um, my culture and my identity and being Kuwaitia, like this was stuff that I knew. Um, and like I said, we were, the plan was to move back to Kuwait my mom had made the decision that she wanted to pursue her medical career further. And at that time, um, the a, a decision between my parents was that my father and my brother would move to Kuwait and I would stay with my mom. Um, as much as I am today, I was even more sassy then. <laughs> and uh, I was very independent but I couldn't understand why I would stay and my brother and my dad would go. Um, but it just made sense in the 80s that little girls stay with their moms and boys go with their dads. That's just what you do, and especially in Middle Eastern culture. Um, that's just what happened. And I, I don't ever remember um, like voicing my opinion or talking about it, but... As a child, I do remember having feelings about it. And I think that 
I and I and I'm looking back on this with the identity of an adult and probably identifying with a small my small maybe like weirdness I'm talking from like a high level perspective but maybe my inner child and wanting to give that child like a voice or something but but I didn't and anyways my feelings were hurt and I became sassy and angry um and so I stayed with my mom we drove across the country from California to New York where my mom went to medical school to Albany and I will tell you what Albany was cold that'll make anybody cranky and angry and I was angry and I was acting up <laughs> and so my my brother and my dad moved to Kuwait and it was just me and my mom in Albany and that was really hard for me as a little girl um, I missed my brother and my dad I missed them a lot and that was a big big hole for me and, and I spent a lot of time by myself. And I remember that was when I first discovered MTV and those music videos. And there was that one music video that was like all in pencil. And, I, and I'm like, MTV is the business, you know? And I really started discovering culture and, and things and, and arts and um, the Simpsons. That's when the Simpsons first came on. And Oh man, I was just about it and just fiercely independent. And it was okay because um, my mom my mom was there, but she wasn't. And I remember I used to sleep with her in her bed because that was really like the only time that I could be around her. Um, and I also, I, I had to develop a new group of friends and... Um, and I had friends, but I didn't. And so I was just shaping this identity that became very different. And I, I didn't want to get close to people. And, um, and so things were just really shifting. And that piece that I knew about my culture was gone because my mom didn't speak to me in Arabic. I didn't have that cultural piece anymore. Um, and I'm also, you know, I'm fair. I have the blonde hair and... You know, I'm not really identifying as Kuwaitia anymore. So again, just lots of shifts in, in identity. Um, me and my mom fly to Kuwait and we, we get to see my family. I see my brothers there. He's engaging in, in all of this. I, we have a huge family in Kuwait, huge. Um, and then we come back. Uh, we end up leaving New York and coming to Denver Um and spending time in Denver. So I'm moving around a lot. Uh, more of the same um, than the, uh, the war happens. Um, I, I remember the invasion of Kuwait um, as being one of uh, the most terrifying things of my childhood. Um, because we didn't know what ha had happened to my brother, my dad, my whole family. Um, and, you know, and I think of, I, I, I've been told, you know, you're a child of war. Um, and everything that was supposed to happen to our family and our life and, uh, what we were, we were, you know, like I knew about what my life was going to be like became shattered. And I, what happened also during that time was what I knew that I was supposed to know about fear. Um, I, I was taught 
what fear was. And fear was to not show any emotion at all. I never saw my grandparents cry. I never saw my mom cry. I would see my mom on the phone with the American embassy trying to figure out, you know, if my brother and my dad were even alive or what was going on. And I never saw anybody like get upset or scream or, or react. And it taught me how we were supposed to relate. And, um, that, that really did something to me as a child. Um, and I will let you know that all was well. Um, and everybody got out of Kuwait. My brother, we, (laughs) we actually ended up seeing him because, you know, we're kids, right? So he, he was flown out, um, on out of, um, he was flown out on a plane, but we have a bunch of family that lives in New York. And so my brother was seen like running back and forth, like messing around, jerking, jerking around and on a news camera. And all my family saw him like making funny faces, um, like behind news footage as they were recording in New York and where they were like, Oh my God, we just saw him on TV. And so that was, that was actually the first time that I ever saw my mom, like really express emotion was when um, she knew that he was okay and he had gotten out of the country and it was like, oh, okay. Um, And so uh, anyways, that, you know, that, that taught me a lot about emotion as well. So, so uh, I think that was another place in my life. Like I felt another big hole was around um, fear, right? So I've, you know, I've touched on kind of independency, sassiness, repressing emotions, right? And these were all things that, you know, the shaping of my cultural identity. Um, and I held on to this stuff. I really, I held on to it. The Between the career shaping of my parents and, um, you know, how I learned how to process and deal with emotions, my feelings of like codependency, which also, you know, uh, I'm, I... I really didn't learn how to have healthy coping mechanisms is pretty much what I'm what I'm leading up to. And now by the time I'm I'm 13, um, we'll, we'll wait. Uh, so still in Denver, my parents end up deciding that it's better for them to divorce. Cultural differences are too much. Career paths are too much. Um, we're not moving back to Kuwait. It's decided that it's better not to go back to a war-torn country. At this point, I have already accepted that we're not going to have that family unit like I believed that we would. And I and I already have a level of acceptance around this. My brother has come back to the United States and is staying, at least for a while. Um, now my mom moves us to Jackson, Mississippi. Let me tell you about the South. I don't know how many people have ever test run the South, but if you are not from the South and you are from this general area, the South will blow your mind. (laughs) The South is something else. We moved to Jackson, Mississippi, and the culture of the South is both beautiful and confusing and, you know, um, being being of, of Middle Eastern descent and then... I, you know, we moved to the South at the time, the South had the worst public school systems, Jackson in in particular, had the worst public school systems in the country. So my mom and dad decided that it would be better for us to go to a 
a Christian school. <laughs> to this day, I, I don't know if that was the best choice. So for the first time in my life ever, outside of the few prayers that, you know, the, a bit of the teachings that my dad had given us, which we decided were not for us. We just, that was not what we wanted. So we had absolutely no exposure to organized religion at all. And we were then put into a Christian school. Um, that was the first time I had ever had exposure to organized religion in my life. And um, we were put into a Christian school and it was just, it was a very difficult, um, it was a very difficult transition for both my brother and I. They were unfamiliar with what Middle Eastern even was in Jackson, Mississippi. And um, it was a difficult year for my brother and I, and we did not acclimate very well. Um, they they were somewhat discriminatory against my brother. They they needed to assume that we had to be some form of um, something, but because and my brother's very olive skinned and I am not, <laughs> and so he was more discriminated against than I was. But but the South has a very deep culture that I, in many ways, I did come to appreciate just because of how unique it was. Um, and we got to go to like Mardi Gras and, you know, there was, we took a trip down to Florida. And so there was a lot of things that we got to do that I was really grateful for the experience. But after our one year in the, in Jackson, I was really grateful to move back to Colorado um, after that. And uh, so we moved back to Colorado and now I'm um, uh, just turning 12 years old. And this is when i um, I start to experience uh, drugs and things for the first time. So um, I drink. I drink for the first time when I'm 12 years old, and I'm not sure again where my mom is. I think she's moonlighting back and forth between Jackson and um, Colorado um, because of work. She she's still pursuing. She does graduate from med school. She takes on emergency medicine. Um, but I drink for the first time. Um, within the next year, I start using um, pot. By the time I'm 13, um, I get into um, I, meth is the first drug that I ever use. By the time I'm 13, I also I I am I pop off a lot. I have a tendency to just I can get I can go from zero to a hundred really quick. I have a pretty I have a pretty um, I'm still pretty sassy. Um, my mom ends up getting remarried. Um, and we're, you know, she, she has a baby. Um, and the two kids my mom has, I'm going to, I'm going to slide this part in because this becomes incredibly important. The two babies my mom has, I become a caretaker for and I become a caretaker for them and they in many ways are my they in many ways are my guardian angels because if it wasn't for them and the fact that I have that I care for them I probably would have died from my the power of my disease but having to stay grounded for these two little humans saves me from 
my own addiction because when when I care for them, I can't just go completely wild. Um, those who can't see me have to know that I'm taking a breath because of how much I love, how much I love and appreciate the fact that they were in my life, even though at times I resented them deeply because I couldn't just go and get completely f***ed up. So at 13 years old is when I really start going out and um, getting involved in and what I guess I would consider just deep drugs and um, popping off and doing some of the most. And but at 13 years old, I also uh, I get my I get <laughs> I get beat up really bad for the first time too, which is good. So my pop off and getting my ass handed to me all coincidentally happens at the same time, and that that was kind of a safe thing to have happen. Um, this one of my very first fight that I get into my and it was with a friend of mine we we had a fight over dope and um she takes me by the hair and she rams me into a tree trunk and I end up getting knocked out but what that did for me was that it it let me know that no matter how bad the fight was was that I would survive um and so what I realized is that I you know, I can get into fights with people and it doesn't really matter if I lose, like I'll, I would end up being okay. And that, that did not, in like, I guess in some ways it served me well, but it also taught me a lot about not just running off at the mouth at people. You don't, I mean, if you're going to throw blows with people, it needs to be legitimately and validly worth it. And also you need to, like, I really, it meant that I was really going to need to be able to fight with them. And so um, I learned a lot about, I learned a lot about fighting with people. And I learned that I could take seriously, take a whooping and that it was going to be all right in the end. Right. Um, So from 13, from 13 until 18, I experienced a lot a lot about the streets like um, Colorado Springs at the time in the in the mid 90s was just it was a really it was a really bizarre place Um, the 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 culture of the 90s was one where everybody was kind of doing something I mean you know you're if you if you were a legitimate dope dealer, you had a triple beam, like your dope dealer was not traveling. And so if you ended up at a house where somebody had a triple beam, it was like... Explain a triple beam. We are in 2023. <laughs> so so <laughs> a triple beam was a way to weigh drugs. And it was a very large apparatus that you couldn't just throw into the back seat. And also that dude was probably up for nine days <laughs> seeing seeing shadow people. And he and and you didn't just arrive at his house. Like, you know, it wasn't it was it was somebody who, you know, you don't you didn't just get there. Like um, so the culture, the culture was very, very different, and people were very, very different in the '90s. Um, it was a, it was a very, um, 
the dope was different. The people were different. It was a very, I want to say it was like a very loyal culture and people were genuinely, um, people were like genuinely invested in the drug culture. Anyways, so I, uh, by, by the, tw- between the ages of 13 and I want to say like 18 years old, um, Colorado Springs was just, uh, Colorado Springs was just, um, I, um, I think at 14, uh, I had been involved in, um, a drive by that I don't even know why it happened. I still remember the first time I ever heard the first time I was in a car and I ever heard, um, a gun go off. I remember it sounded, it sounded so loud, um, and I was behind the driver. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what are we even shooting at? You know, like, why is, like, what is even happening? But it was so fast. Um, and, you know, thinking, like, I hope, I hope we didn't, you know, hit somebody, right? Um, but I also remember, again, that sense of, like, not having fear, right? Just, just being involved in situations where um, things had become so, so normalized, and that I think for other people, um, that probably should have been not a normal situation, but for me. I was just there and and now when I look back on things I I realized that that was probably not normal, right? <laughs> like this is not a normal situation. There probably could have been a different reaction to that situation. And this is now my adult self recognizing wanting to say to my little self like get out of there, right? But but that's the work I get to do today. That's the work in my recovery today. I get to say, it's okay. I don't have to have shame and I don't have to have guilt. And I get to work through these things and I get to honor that for myself. And I get to validate those feelings that I have today because that's where I am. And I, and I lived through those experiences and it is okay, right? But for that self that didn't have that fear and that didn't say, hey, this is not normal. That's just where I was in those moments, in those moments in time. And I can reflect back and and know that that that's just where I was, right? So um I also I also remember being um I remember being like 16 years old and just sitting in a room just talking about God knows what, doesn't even matter, and hearing pop and seeing, you know, something come across. And <laughs> the only thing I remember saying to myself was when I looked around the room and being like, well, I know they're not mad at me. So which one of you is it? Right? Like, <laughs> like, I know that's not my fault. Um, and that being my reaction, right? Um, which is also, you know, in, in reflection, like, that's also not a normal reaction. But again, I can I can honor I can honor that experience and I can just say that's okay, right? This is the work. This is the work that my adult self can do for my adolescent self and I can let it go and I can move forward and I can say that's okay. Because this is what my recovery, this is what my recovery has afforded for me today. 
um, and I can I can I can honor that. Um, so by the time, so that's my adolescent experience, right? And there's more of that. And, and those are just my, those are my earliest kind of memories. Those when I play that, when I play this movie of, in my mind of, you know, what are those things that I want to talk about today to say, if you can hear me now, and if this story can help anybody, and if I can help try to normalize some of these things for people and say, we do recover, right? We we do we do have these experiences, and yes, we do recover. Um, those are those kind of like trigger point moments for me where I can say these are some of those things, right? Um, from from I want to say eighteen to I don't know um, my I'm going to go with like my mid twenties or so. Um, I. I'm caring for my younger brother and sister. And, and like I was trying to talk about those, those kids, my, my younger brother and my younger sister, um, they help keep me grounded. They, I'm caring for them. And I'm, I'm also deep in this addiction, right? I'm deep in like, I'm involved in like weird things and I'm everywhere. I have this sense of identity that is shifting and shaping and, I float from like group of people to group of people and um, it's, it doesn't matter. And I'm always uniquely me. I, I remember um, <laughs> again in the nineties, right? When it came to clicking up or like getting affiliated, there were two ways that women could, could click up and you either, you either got in or you got jumped in. I remember watching a woman get jumped in and I, and even for being scrappy, I was like, oh, no, that 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 will not work for me. Um, she she got it handed to her so badly that I said, absolutely not. Um, I remember being um, with, you know, like so many different groups of people and being able to just like float around just like a rolling stone and that. That is how I identified constantly being able to float neutrally going wherever I wanted to go all the time. And I think a lot of that had to do now, right? Looking back, I think a lot of that had to do with being able to belong everywhere and nowhere at all, everywhere and nowhere at all, being able to feel accepted by everyone and then really always having this sense of really in my own mind, like not really truly being accepted by anybody ever, right? Like that's how I saw myself. And I think, and I even think part of that still resonates today, except that I found my community when I found the 12 steps. That's, that's how I've been able to figure it out by finding a philosophy. And that what, that's how I became able to be grounded was the community that I found by finding the philosophy. Um, so I needed to, to put that in. Um, so by, by 20, by about, um, 24, um, I, um, ended up going to, I did, um, 
or 22, I um, decided that I needed to, oh, I'm sorry, let me back up. I ended up getting kicked out of high school. Uh, that was a big, that was a big major blow point in my life. Um, <laughs> because I couldn't be bothered with first and second period. It was too early for me. I was too busy doing other things. And um, they, <laughs> they knew, I mean, they knew that I was using, um, and when I walked into to class one day, so I'm 17, and they were all waiting for me, like all the, the principal, they had the whole, I mean, they wouldn't, they were being extra, but they had all the peoples up there waiting, and they made me um, call my mom, who was working for the Department of Corrections at the time in Canyon City, because she's now, you know, the medical director of all the all the things. And they made me call my mom at work, and I'm high as a kite. And I had to call my mom at work and be like, "Mom, I am being expelled from high school because I cannot." make it to first or second period. And that was one of the worst experiences ever. Um, so I had to sit there with all of the peoples, like the principal, the vice principal. I almost feel like we had two vice principals in my memory for some reason and um, wait for her to drive from Canyon City up to the school. And like my high, of course, like won't go away. You know, <laughs> it's like the high that will never end. And um be expelled from school. And then for some reason, because at the time it, it didn't, it seemed like a big deal. But then once I left, then I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm expelled from school. And I still, I was like, well, <laughs> and then that night I was like, I have a party that I'm going to. And my mom was like, so she was so crazy mad at me that I could even imagine going to this party. So I snuck out my window to go to the to go to that party because I still was so entitled and just nothing was making sense to me like I didn't I could not I could not understand how bad of an addict I was it wasn't making sense like how bad of an addict I was um I will tell you that I think something that I missed on this whole time was that I was always a good student the whole time I was always a good student. I never wasn't a good student. I always got good grades um, when I chose to show up. Um, so I know I'm jumping around a lot, but it's my brain. But so that's <laughs> perfectly fine. Perfectly so fine. And nowadays they have what principal, assistant principal, two deans, and a partridge in a pear tree. You know what I mean? For it's real. Like, it's. Uh, you weren't just high. It's a real, it was a real thing. I feel like there really was in my brain. I feel like there was like two vice principals there. It felt like a lot of people were yeah. there. Like they pulled out all the people. I, maybe they even pulled one in from somewhere. I don't know, but I felt like there were so they many people that cast. were there. They, they brought in the crew. Um, so where do I want to go next? How, where do I want to go next? Um, it, it's almost like I have this, I had this like movie playing in my mind, right? Because this is my story and this is the great thing, right? We get to, um, this is what we get to do in our recovery is that we get to be the director and the narrator of our story and we get to, we get to tell it how we want to. Um, I think what I would, I, I think where I want to go with this next is I would like to, I, very importantly, I want to talk about um, 
I want to talk about some of the abuse that I endured because um, some of the abuse that I endured in a uh, a relationship that I was in really really changed how I. It really changed how I looked at the world and it changed how I showed up in the world and it also became kind of how I stepped into my power. So for a lot of the women and men out there who are listening, um, what I want you to know is that my power is my pain and my courage is my crown. Um, I, I was in an incredibly abusive and toxic relationship for 10 years of my life. And that relationship, at one point, I became a victim by choice. That is not something I will ever do again. Uh, I, was, I was with a person who changed the way that I view reality. There was a ton of gaslighting and abuse and trauma and torment and pain, I, I literally um, allowed myself to stay stuck in something that was so incredibly toxic and unhealthy. Uh, and at some point, the cycle of abuse just became so sick and uh, that... I didn't I didn't know how to get out. I didn't know how to um I didn't know how to change the dynamic of it. And I stayed cuz I confused the difference between love and lust. I I lost I lost my sense of self so much. Um and it my identity was was broken to my core. And what happened, what happened in this relationship was that um, I had to, when I finally, when I, when I finally, after many, many attempts of, of trying to break away and then I would go back and break away and go back, um, what finally ended up happening at the end of this relationship was that I was left not knowing who I was anymore and I had to figure out how to learn who I was all over again. And once I once I got to redefine who I was, um, I became this, this whole new person and that was really very, very scary for me. And that, and that took a lot of, that took so much courage. And I will tell you that that new person was nowhere near who I was when I first met that individual. And, and that had to become okay. That it had to become okay for me to be completely different than the woman that I was when I first entered that relationship 10 years before. I had to I had to be okay with letting go of the woman that I was when I met that that man in the beginning because I will never I will never be the woman that I was when I first when I met him. And and I am completely and totally okay with knowing that I have changed and I have grown and I have shifted and I have shaped 
Um, And I think that it's really important for anybody who has ever been abused to understand that you do lose your sense of identity, but you get to rebuild and reshape a brand new sense of identity. Um, And the important thing also to know is that you do become empowered from pain. Pain doesn't have to be debilitating. Pain can become very, very empowering. And we don't have to be victims by choice ever again, ever, ever again. Um, so after, uh, after being um, in a very abusive and toxic relationship, uh, in that in that time, by the way, I did um, I did go to college and I did graduate from I did graduate from college. Um, I got my bachelor's degree. Um, I went on to work for uh, corporate America. That whole time, there was man, I was living this dual life um, as many as as many abused people often do. So I would go I would go to college and I would you know and I would come home and I would just be like, bad, don't hit me, you know, or don't at least punch me, you know, and don't hit me in the face. Like, oh God, all the weird things that we say. And, um, and so, um, I would, and then I worked for corporate America and, um, I worked for corporate America for five years actually. And, uh, I remember, (laughs) I remember one time someone, um, I remember one time someone had OD'd, um, Someone had OD'd and I literally had to step over him in my business casual attire to go to work. And and we and and at this time now I'm on heroin. So I mean and the substances are are all different. It's uh it's meth, it's heroin, it's alcohol. Alcohol, by the way, has been my ride or die for me the whole time, um, with the exception of when I'm on heroin. That's the only time I'm not drinking. Otherwise, me and alcohol are tight. You know, I, I would drink on <laughs> antabuse. I'd figure out a way. Me and alcohol are, we're in it, um, with the exception of heroin. Heroin is the only time I am not using um, alcohol. But but I I have this very vivid memory of going to work at my corporate job and literally having to step, I can't be late and and they got things going on. They've got it under control and I have to step over him to get to work. And he does, and this, and this dude, he does survive. Right. Um, And this is before Narcan, you know, this is 2011. I think it was. Yeah, um, those, those techniques used to be crazy. Uh, frozen chicken, I mean, ice baths, yeah, slapping in the face, all the all the craziness. And I'm like, it's under control, you know. Like, I got to get out of here. I don't have time for this, right? <laughs> I'm not pumping his chest. You I know. have got to you, go. You get the frozen chicken. I am out. the one who is working. Everybody else has this under control, right? Like, <laughs> I got to get out of here. Um, and that's what I did. So, um. You know, and, and more of these stories carry on. So um, I do want to get to my recovery, but, um, you know, the ascension continues. I get to, by the time, by the time I get to the, the latter part of my disease, it has completely escalated to a point that I don't even know um, 
what starts happening or or how I end up at the point that I end up at. Um, but um, people start trusting me with enormous amounts of dope. And I'm like, why is this happening? Um, but it does. And, um, you know, and I start... I start seeing things where I'm like, is this, it's like being in a Quentin Tarantino spaghetti Western, right? Like you're just, you're out there, you're, you're doing the most. I I can remember, I can remember having conversations with people about, you know, driving across the border, stopping or being slow enough with the car to like let piles of people jump in to to move them across the border? Are the drones going to sense body heat? I mean, just conversations that are like so surreal. Um, and that became my life. And, you know, I would get, I would get glimpses of myself and just having, you know, having enormous amounts of just different types of drugs that I don't even know why I have them or what why I'm doing what I'm doing and thinking like, how did I get here? And what am I doing? And why am I doing this? And, um, and I, and it just, it just kept going and kept going. Um, and so there was this one, there was this one time about, um, three months before that final arrest I was talking about, um, where, I had been driving back and forth between uh, Colorado Springs because I would I would plug in the springs and then I would, you know, like do the the dusting the you know whatever up in Denver, and I had pulled my car over on the side of the road and I got out and I like I remember just like falling to my knees to whatever source in the sky I didn't give up. Buddha, Allah, God, spirit, whatever was willing to give me the time to listen. And I remember screaming and saying, please help me and make this stop because I don't know how. And I had this incredible feeling of not knowing if I was dead or alive if it was a dream and genuinely not giving a f- either way, it didn't matter anymore. Like it just didn't matter. Um, and that there's a difference between like wanting to die and not caring if you were already dead. Um, and that's kind of like, where I think where I was. And so um, when I talk about my recovery today and how incredibly, incredibly blessed and humble and grateful I am to have found recovery, um, I I was someone who got... uh, (laughs) who was found by the state of Colorado at the last minute. And they said, and it was like these acts, these like acts of the universe that no human being could have possibly orchestrated, right? 
um, where they stepped in and, and all these things had to happen. Like I had to be like lost in Adams County for a day where they just forgot about me in a cell and like weird stuff had to happen. Um, but, but it happened that I was, I got into, um, the therapeutic community and I was just so willing to do whatever they said. And I have just, I have just been in a state of willingness ever since. Um, I'm so open and receptive to all those things, God, Allah, the universe, spirit, all of it, everything, everything, every suggestion that I get, um, everything, I am willing to do whatever it takes to stay clean one more day. And, and I don't know um, what my tomorrow looks like, but I keep doing what I need to do that has worked for me yesterday, today. And I take the suggestions from the people who have clean time and who have um, who tell me to keep coming back and keep showing up. And um, I've built an amazing community of other like-minded people and the ones who suggest that I um, do those things that are suggested in this 12-step program of recovery that I've come to know and trust and believe in. I believe in it so much. Like, um, I do not want to go back to that feeling that I had I don't I don't want to go back to that feeling that I had on the side of the road that day where I had to question uh, whether or not I was dead or alive. Like I don't want to ever feel like that again. I don't I don't ever want to have to look at my mom or dad and know that I keep them up at night with them wondering if I'm dead or alive. Like that's not fair for me to do. Um, and I don't know if the people that are listening to this message um, have, if anything that I've said has planted any seeds for you. But for those of you that are struggling, what I want you to know from me is that if nobody has told you yet today that they love you and you are worth it, I hope you hear me when I tell you that I love you and you are worth it. And you matter to people that you have not even met yet. Um, I think that is all that I have. Man, that's... That's, that's a lot. Yes, yes. Um, you covered recovery, family. Um, everybody that's listening, um, yeah, you hear the, the breaths of emotion. That's, that, is, that is truly recovery living inside of a person. Um, if you want to know what that looks like pick up the phone call a friend get on the side of the road and pray you know she probably covered everything all the way to the hindu religion to to, <laughs> to christianity that that morning to screaming off the devil you know and that's and that's just basically what it what happens you know um if you want to live just get that ounce of courage to ask for help you don't got to do it yourself you know, you don't. If you're struggling right now, if you're sitting in, you're sitting in the can, you're sitting in prison, you're, you're wondering if you're in a place where you know you shouldn't be right now, just listening to the radio and you're just looking for help. Go find somebody. Um, the world has a tendency to, to show up for you when you can't show up for yourself, if that makes sense. 
It has that tendency to show up for you, and it's going to surprise you, and it's going to hurt, like she, she explained. God doesn't have a, a medical detox. He just <laughs> <laughs> he, he puts you in it. It's going to burn. You're going to slap your face. It's going to you're going to go through the pain and you're going to um, and you're going to feel it. But if you stick through it, you're going to be OK and you're going to learn from that 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 rug burn. Um, thank you for 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 being here today in the journey that you're doing. Um, thank you for everybody's yes I, I put a lot of people that that work for me i have a, quite a few people that work for me and you know they're right in front of me and have an amazing story and i'm not trying to just make it as a, as a tribe you know tribe of tribe it's just when you got a, amazing people i've been looking for a business development professional to train green and me and my my partners that are and uh you know the uh the leadership team have been looking for nani for quite a while and uh she just shows up every day and i just want to thank you for that and um Thank you for helping us in Denver and, and Las Vegas and, and the things that we're doing. Um, you know, um, it's just amazing. You know, the, you're in the new studio. I want to give Sean a big thank you, um, Max Media, all, all that for um, making it happen. Slim over here, just sticking back to the thing. If you want to add anything, you know, I get long-winded, but. Oh, dude, you're, you, you have the best long winds, okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, you hear that, you hear that, that babe, Keisha? Do you think so? Don't like, talk, talk to your wife right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nani, um, one thing you said was keep doing, I'm not quoting exactly, but keep doing what worked yesterday to keep going today. And I really like that. That's, thank you. Yes. Um, thank you for sharing with us. And I, I think that what you had to say was very important and impactful. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do that with us today. Um, you said so many things. My power is my pain and my courage is my crown. There's so many things that you said that stuck out to me, but um, I can't condense them all into the time we have left. But I just, I thank you for, for taking the time to share. Um, Malhai, if, if, the, if the words that she said hit you in, you, you do want to make that phone call. Um, 720-60-TRIBE is the number to reach out to Tomas and his crew. If they can't help you, they want to put you in touch with an organization that can. And that doesn't have to be tribe recovery homes. There's so many um, recovery homes and treatment centers here in the Mile High and nationwide. If you're if you're watching from from afar, um, you can also pick up the phone. You can call AA. The number for AA is 866-210-1303. It's 866-210-1303. You can call Narcotics Anonymous 303-412-2884. And uh, you can pick up the phone and call Tribe Recovery Homes at 720-60-TRIBE. So there's a lot of numbers and resources for you. You can grab your phone right now and you can Google what your issue is. And I promise you, you're going to find a number for somebody that's there ready to talk to you and help you. So, you know, you always get these phone numbers thrown at you and you go, I can't keep track of that. You have access right here in, in your phone to start the process. And you can call a friend or a family member. And if they truly love you, they're going to be there for you, too. Um, Nani Al Jalil has been our guest from Colorado Springs. We thank her for coming in. This program is sharing our stories. We're here each Sunday and we bring in a different guest to talk to you about addiction and recovery and to let you know that there is a pathway to your recovery. And as she said earlier, yes, we do recover. So I want to thank you for joining us this morning. 
I want to thank Nani once again for coming in. And Malhai, if you want to listen to this program again from the beginning, you'll be able to find it online, uh, facebook.com slash SOS, sharing our stories. You can also find it on jammin1015.com, flowdenver.com. And um, if you're watching online with us right now, because we also have a live feed going on, we want to thank you for being a part of it this morning. This is Sharing Our Stories. Thank you so much for being here and have a great day.